every time we start to think about an episode, and because we don't speak fluent biblical Hebrew, we open up a translation of the Torah. And that translation has quite a bit of say in how we understand both the text and the context in which this all was written. Parshat Ha'azinu, one of the final parshiot of the entire Torah, is an interesting case study. Because after all this narrative prose, this entire Torah portion is written as a poem. And translating not only biblical text, but biblical poetry, can be a real challenge. So we called up the world's foremost expert on the subject, Professor Robert Alter. Professor Alter has been teaching Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley, for over 50 years. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, the Council of Scholars of the Library of Congress, and is past president of the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics. Professor Alter has published 24 books unpacking the poetry and prose of ancient literature, but is most widely known for his award-winning translations of the entire Torah. Professor Alter will help us unpack the text itself of this Parsha and try to understand why we end with a poem at all. We'll discuss what clues this poem gives us about the ways in which people communicated and how they used language at the time the Torah was written, and even their views on monotheism and the way Judaism was practiced. Today's conversation feels like a very specific kind of Torah study to me, whereas most of this year we've looked broadly at themes that stick out to us. Today we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of the words themselves with the guy who literally wrote the book. For me, I can only say that each one of these episodes has unlocked a new access point to the text, and therefore a greater understanding of the bones around which Judaism is built and practiced. And I appreciate that. So thanks for being here. I hope all of you who fasted yesterday for Yom Kippur had a meaningful fast, and I'm excited to share this conversation with one of the Torah's greatest scholars. On to the show. Today on the show, I am so, so excited to welcome back Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Thank you for being here to finish out this round of Torah. So excited for this conversation, Raviv. And today we are incredibly grateful to be joined by Professor Robert Alter, joining from the University of California in Berkeley, where he's taught since 1967, the author of 24 books, perhaps most notably his incredible translation of the entire Hebrew Bible. Professor Alter, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Rabbi Adam, how about we jump right in, give us a summary, broad look at Ha'azinu, this final portion of Torah, and what we've got in store. 
First of all, I just want to say I am incredibly grateful, Professor Alter, for you joining us. I have learned a tremendous amount from you from a distance from your books, and it's it's really a thrill for me to get to be in conversation with you and, and to learn from you today. Hazinu is, is not the last Parsha of the Torah, but it's the last that we read on the normal weekly rotation that we follow through the year. Next week, there will be a, a special reading for Sukkot, drawn actually back from the book of Exodus. And then the Torah's final chapters will be chanted on Simchat Torah, and the scroll will get rolled back to the beginning, and we'll start the whole cycle of study all over again. Hazinu is is really an unusual portion in that it's almost entirely comprised of an extended poem or song that Moses recites to the Israelites before leaving them to ascend Mount Nebo, where he'll have a chance to look out over the promised land, and then he'll die. This continues the theme of succession that we started talking about last week with Moses, who's been the driver of nearly all the action from the beginning of the book of Exodus onward, now departing from the scene and passing the mantle of leadership on to the next generation. Since we have with us literally one of, if not the world's foremost expert on biblical poetry, I'll leave it to Professor Alter to help us understand the history and meaning of this complex text and what it's doing here right at the end of the Torah story. The only thing that I want to say at this point is that when I teach my Intro to Judaism classes, in the very first session, I always reference one of my favorite lines from a scholar called the Nitziv, who lived in the 18th century in Lithuania, who wrote, Kol HaTorah Kula Shira, that the whole Torah should be read as poetry, not prose. And I think for a lot of people, many of whom have been taught their whole lives that they're supposed to take this text at face value, that's a really liberating concept. And what I'm hoping to learn from you today, Professor, about this particular piece of poetry and about what it means to see the whole Torah through a wider and more sensitive lens is a reflection on this question, is all of Torah in some way a poem? It begins like this in the Hebrew. I'll just read the first two verses, which is three lines of poetry. Ha'azinu ha'shamayim va'adabera v'tishma ha'aretz imrefi ya'arof kamatar l'khi tizal katal imrati kasirim alei Give ear, O heavens, that I may speak, and let the earth hear my mouth's utterances. Let my teaching drop like rain, my saying flow like dew, like showers on the green and like cloudbirds on the grass. Now, Biblical poetry, maybe you could hear it, well, I won't read it again in the Hebrew, but, but when I read it in the Hebrew, it's very compact. The structure of uh, ancient Hebrew lends itself to compactness. So as a translator, my big challenge in uh, rendering the poems, which was different from uh, rendering the, the uh, prose, was to tamp down the English language, for the most part, to use compact words, if possible, monosyllabic words, and get something of that powerful 
compactness of the the Hebrew. So you, you hear words like drop, rain, flow, dew, green, grass, all monosyllabic words. This is a detectable formal structure. And while there may be loose parallelisms in the narrative prose, it's nothing like this tightness. Here's one other thing to keep in mind, which I did when I translated. Biblical prose has a conventionally limited vocabulary. You use only certain primary terms. And that's the beauty of biblical prose, because there's a kind of eloquence of simplicity. So, for, for example, in biblical prose, there's only one way to say light. I mean, the, the light that comes from the sun or from a lamp, which is or. And then you have a source of light, which is ma'or. Just those two words. In um, the poems, you find that a much bigger vocabulary is tapped. So you, you, you have words that would be approximately parallels or at least analogous to English words like brilliance, radiance, dazzle, effulgence, and, and so forth. The texture, the language is very different. I'd love to discuss your journey on how to engage with this text, but first would love to start with the Parsha at hand. What's happening here? Why are we ending this wild journey with a poem? It is a convention. It doesn't occur in every single book, but it occurs in several near the end of a long narrative book. Deuteronomy, I suppose, is more hortatory than that, but it contains many narrative sequences. You insert a long poem, which is a kind of grand climax of everything that's preceded. I'll mention two other examples. Just before the end of Genesis, you have Jacob's blessings to his sons on his deathbed which is a long poem, in a way, is a prediction of the future of the tribes. Since we've been following the story of the 12 brothers who are going to become the eponymous founders of the tribes. Then at the end of the David story, we have actually two long poems. The longer and the more prominent, and I would say intelligible of the two, is a kind of victory psalm. So these long poems that were inserted were not by the same author as the prose that, that preceded it. And in most cases, they were older. Are there any works of narrative literature that compare in style to the writings of the Torah? In Greek epic, as we know, the theme is announced at the beginning, also in Latin epic, the wrath of Achilles, right? Aeneid of arms and the man I sing. The equivalent with a big difference is that the poet begins the poem to announce the grandeur and the scope of the poetic words that he will go on to convey by summoning heaven and earth as witnesses to his words. You have the same thing at, at, the, at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. The last thing I want to say about uh, the poem, after 
we have in verse 4 a notation of the perfection of the deity. Uh, his acts are perfect for all his ways are justice, a steadfast God without wrong, true and right is he. But then there's a swerve. God is perfect and presumably especially perfect in justice, according to the belief of the poet. But what happens with the Israelites? Did he act ruinously? No, his son's the fault, a perverse and twisted brood. To the Lord will you requite the space and unwise people? Is he not your father, your shaper? He made you and set you unshaken. Okay, I'll just cut that off there for a minute. It's fun to read now on, but I won't. So what is this swerve about? What does that have to do with the content of the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy has its own distinctive theology. The Deuteronomist is really worried that Israel will stray from the covenant, which in particular for him means to uh, stray from monotheism. Israel is surrounded by all the, these uh, polytheistic peoples, and it's tempting to be drawn into their cultic practices. And in fact, we know from the prophets that this was a fact. The Israelite populace was often attracted to paganism. According to the theology of Deuteronomy, which is repeated again and again in the, the preceding chapters, if the Israelites do this, ruin is going to come down upon them. Exile, destruction, death. If they remain faithful to the covenant, they will remain firm on their land. This poem, I think it is, an, I'm almost sure it is an older poem than the Deuteronomy, which would have been, its initial version would have been around 621 BCE. This poem really summarizes that, that it gives a powerful poetic and rhetorical expression to that theology. So many insights to unpack, though. I'm curious about the last piece, which is talking about the Deuteronomical theology as a fear that people will stray from monotheism. There are some interesting hints in this poem of a time before monotheism. Isn't that right, Professor Alter? Right. And I even read, and I believe I read in your writings, the possibility that some of those hints had been edited in this poem. This is not an original perception of mine. It's pretty much scholarly consensus. Well, so for, for those of us who are listening and learning here, it may come as quite a surprise that Israelites weren't always so purely monotheistic and that there might be hints at some other kind of theology at play. Can you share a little bit about that? I think because we modern Jews come at the end of a long evolution of our faith, it's hard for us to get a take on how monotheism evolves in the Bible. Now, keep in mind that uh, the Bible spans 
many centuries. I mean, if you take the very oldest poem, which probably is the Song of Deborah in Judges 5, and then the latest book, which is the Book of Daniel, uh, that is around 165 BCE, you have almost a thousand years uh, of uh, Hebrew writing. I think there's good evidence, and some of this is reflected, at least at that one point in uh, Shigarat Hazinu that you, you pointed out. It seems to be, early on, the prevalent faith was a, uh, a faith in the God of Israel as a supreme, the supreme God, the indisputable God. But he wasn't necessarily the, the only deity. This may be a little shocking to some of our viewers. There were, there were lesser deities who were, uh, let's say, flim-flam gods, or, 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 you know, not exactly the real thing, but they were sort of gods anyway. A moment that's often cited. And in another long poem, the Song of the Sea, Shiratayam, there are three stanzas, and the stanzas end with, with uh, a, a line that has, of course, become part of the liturgy, Mi kamocha Adonai ba'elim. Who is like unto you, O Lord, in the specific name, Yahweh, his distinctive name, who is like unto you among the gods? So that means that, that there are other gods, but they, they're not worth the candle compared to our God. Um, so you have that. Let's see if I can find that uh, quickly. Um, this is verse 8 you're talking about. When the Most High gave nations their homes and set the divisions of man, God fixed the boundaries of people in relation to Israel's numbers. Um, for the Lord's portion is his people and Jacob is his own allotment. He set out the boundaries of peoples by the number of the sundry gods suggests in some strange way our God, the supreme God, uh, okay, he, he, gave, um, he gave Baal to the Canaanites uh, and another god to, to the Moabites uh, and so forth because they weren't going to believe in him and people need God, so he'll give them the, these sort of gods or pseudo-gods. That is not the, the monotheism of Maimonides or, or, or the, the, the monotheism of modern Jewish, or for that matter, Christian theologians. Monotheism is still in um, evolutionary flux, I would say, in Deuteronomy. If this text goes back a couple of centuries before, which I think is likely, before the composition of, of Deuteronomy, then that puts it fairly far back in, in uh, Israelite history. The combination of gratitude and ritual practices can be deeply powerful and sacred. One Table invites you to bring those practices to your next Shabbat dinner. They're here to help you hold that magic of Shabbat while protecting each other. Even when you're alone, Shabbat is a built-in reminder to do something a little special for yourself. Plus, One Table helps out with small financial gifts so you can make sure it's extra special. Head to onetable.org to start. You've been quoted as saying that what is wrong with previous translations of Torah is everything. 
Yes, <laughs> I'll stand by that. <laughs> so I'm wondering what, you know, we, we are trying to do the work of interpreting and translating Torah as best as we can. What do you see as the major aspects that most translations are missing? My point of departure is the literary shaping of uh, not only the Torah, but of, of uh, the whole Bible. Now, until I explain this, some of your viewers may say, oh, well, you know, he's a professor of literature. He, ha he has a, a, a bee in his bonnet about literature, so he says everything is literature. Here's the point. There's something, I would say, unfathomable about how the Bible came about, which is envisaged it this way. Ancient Israel, as much as we talk about the glories of Solomon's temple and so forth, was in the larger picture of ancient Near Eastern cultures, the boondocks. That is, it's a little sliver of land, not uh, powerful militarily, and with a, a fairly impoverished visual culture, a material culture. That is, you compare it to Egypt or to Mesopotamia, it's, its architecture is pretty rudimentary. Uh, the the uh, uh, visual representations that have, which are not very many that have come down to us are pretty much stick drawings. So, you wouldn't expect that great literature, that, that is brilliant poetry, astoundingly subtle and innovative and complex narrative would emerge from the, this backwoods culture, but it did. So I, I have no explanation for that. Why is that important? Clearly, the biblical writers were actuated by a sense that they had a new vision of God and creation and even human nature. For these unfathomable reasons, they decided to cast their vision in subtle, beautifully wrought narrative prose and um, sometimes dazzlingly brilliant poetry. So my initial contention is that even someone who's reading the Bible strictly for religious reasons, you will get a much more finely focused picture of what these biblical writers wanted to say about human nature, history, the realm of ethics, creation, and God, if you have accessible to you the extraordinary literary form in, in which all this was conveyed. So this is my big gripe with the preceding translators. They don't see the literary forms at all, and they ride roughshod over them. Okay, I'll just give you one, one example. Repetition is crucial to the narrative art of the Bible. Many subtle and even profound things happen by repeating the same word or phrases with different nuances or, or totally different meanings. The translators don't see that. And they've all learned in middle school that you shouldn't repeat yourself. 
So they don't repeat themselves. They, they, they use synonyms and variations and they destroy what's going on. Second problem is they, they don't hear the beauty of the poetry and the prose. So uh, you have arrhythmic translations uh, of the prose narrative, narrative prose, whereas the rhythms are extremely important and are inseparable from uh, meaning. The King James Version, those learned um, Protestant uh, scholars who were assembled at the behest of King James I, they were in touch with the literary culture of their age. And, and they had a good sense uh, of literary English. They made a lot of mistakes, and uh, I have other quarrels with, with them, but they, they really knew how to write good English. Uh, in fact, the, the, the most um, influential of the 40 Samad translators, Lancelot Andrews, who was uh, the Bishop of Rome, uh, the Bishop of London, I'm sorry, uh, I think, was one of the eminent uh, stylists of his age because his uh, um, sermons are, are available to read. The committees in the 20th century who translated it have a wretched sense of literary English. They mix in the same verse or in the, the, the same episode phrases that sound like government directives, advertising copy, the daily newspaper. It's a, a, a stylistic uh, jangling w which seriously betrays the meaningful beauty of the Hebrew. So that, I could go, go on and <laughs> I could rave about this, but I won't. Uh, so that's my, my uh, strenuous objection to the existing translations. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and helping us unpack Parshat Hazinu. It is a true honor to be in conversation with you, and thank you for all of your work in helping us understand broadly uh, what the Torah has in store. Thank you for, for being here today. Well, I'm very happy to be here. And Rabbi Adam Greenwald, thank you for giving us some beautiful Torah today as well. Always a pleasure. And so... Such an honor to learn from you, Professor Alter. Thank you for taking the time. Okay, well, to all of you, Gemach uh, Hatimatova. This coming year will be better than the past one. Amen. Amen. And to all of our listeners, Shabbat Shalom. Life's like poetry, but in my poem be Until now, there's always been a missing line. You know life's too short to hide a good thing you feel. This study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host today was Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Our guest was Robert Alter. Artwork by Julia Pott. We'll see you next week. Missing line